Thanks for listening to the Frontiers podcast. If you have a moment before we start, please rate and follow this podcast. It makes a huge difference. The more of you that do this, the more people get to listen. And the more people that get to listen, the bigger platform I'm building for academics to share their research. Thanks so much. Hi there, you're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Professor Mark Maslin, an Earth System Scientist at the University College London, a Royal Society Industrial Fellowship, and the world's leading sustainability thought leader and influencer of 2023. Mark's expertise is in global and regional climatic change, and he has published over 175 papers in journals such as Science, Nature, and The Lancet. Our conversation delves into Mark's research on climate change and translates it into the actions that governments, businesses, and we all as individuals can take to avoid what he calls a climate emergency. And now, please enjoy my discussion with Professor Mark Maslin. Let's start right at the top. Your research is primarily focused on global climate change. So we can frame the discussion for everybody. Can you explain what you mean by climate change and how do scientists like you measure the change of the climate? So climate change and climate is different from weather. So climate is you have hot summers, you have cold winters, and you know that you're going to get a certain amount of rainfall over a year. So that, that's the climate. The weather is what happens day to day. And about, say, 40 years ago, we had the idea that sort of like weather was what happens day to day and climate change happened over a 30-year period. So if there was a shift over 30 years, then that was climate change. And we have been measuring temperatures around the earth for about 150 years. I mean, uh, the British Empire was really good about going and taking over places and then measuring stuff. So we have all this incredible data. And what we realized was that uh, from the late 1980s, climate has been changing on a year-to-year basis. So give you an example, 2023 will be the warmest year on record. It has had the warmest September ever recorded, the warmest October ever recorded. And so we're breaking records of climate all the time. And so therefore, the idea that climate change is a slow process, we now realize it's happening year to year. So you often hear in the press 1.5 degrees Celsius above historical levels. Is it 1.5 degrees compared to what? And what happens at that moment? I'm assuming there's a, a, a gradual period from, from now until then where we're starting to see increasing levels of change and then a tipping point, perhaps. So could you just help explain the relative point that that's referencing and what's going to happen between now and whether that, you know, when that happens, if it does happen? So what scientists wanted was a baseline, a sort of like a sort of like when was climate sort of normal? And we take the pre-industrial period. So we look back... 150, 200 years and go, what was the world's climate like then? And we use that as a baseline and say everything that we've uh, happened after that has really started to accelerate climate change. And so we're then looking at how warm is the planet compared with that. And we're already about 1.2 degrees warmer than that pre-industrial time. And we have this target of 1.5. But we have to backtrack and say, well, where did this target come from? So the target was set at the COP meeting in Paris in 2015. This is the great climate change uh, meeting that occurs every year where all the countries get together to negotiate reducing greenhouse gas emissions and trying to contain climate change so it doesn't get too dangerous. And at that meeting which was incredible. The French were incredibly good at actually organizing people and actually negotiating. And they said, they came out with that we, the leaders of the world, will keep climate change to two degrees above pre-industrial levels and have an aspirational target, if we can, 
to keep it to just 1.5 degrees. Now, you have to remember, these are sort of really arbitrary targets that have come out of politics, not science. And the interesting thing is then, of course, once we had this, they then turned around to the scientists and said, oh, you've got all these wonderful scenarios about going into the future, but you don't have a two-degree one and you don't have a one-and-a-half-degree one. You need to produce these scenarios. And there was a gentle pushback. Uh, so scientists went, but these aren't realistic. You're, you're just not going to do it. And so what happened was they went, no, 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 we really need to know how to do that. And so that's how the whole net zero uh, idea came about. Before 2015, countries were saying, we will cut our emissions by 50% of 1990 levels. And there was a seismic shift at that Paris Agreement because it then said every country in the world will get to net zero emissions in this century. Total different framing. Now, how quickly different countries uh, get there is another matter. So at the moment, the EU will get to net zero by 2050. The UK has it written in law that we will get to net zero by 2050. The USA, 2050. China, 2060. And India, 2070. So that's where we're aiming for. But that net zero, depending on how quickly we do it, depends whether we go to 1.5, 2 degrees, or perhaps even three degrees warming by the end of the century. So can you just describe the pattern of climate change that we would expect to see as we progress, hopefully not, but as we progress towards those increasing temperatures? So I don't think we need to even look to the future. If we just look back over the last two or three years, we have had incredible heat waves. So in 2023, we've had heat waves in the USA, in Southern Europe, and in China. We've had incredible wildfires a couple of years back in Australia and California. We've had droughts and major floods in all continents. The major one last year that everybody picked up on was the one in Pakistan, where 30 million people were affected. And to bring it back home to say, let's look at the UK, in 2022, in July, we had a heat wave where the temperatures hit 40 degrees in two consecutive days. Now, let me put this in context. We have produced mock uh, sort of like weather reports for the year 2040, where temperatures hit 40 degrees or above. We were not expecting this in 2022. And the reason being is the peak temperature in London and the southeast of England for July is 24 degrees. Okay, that's the peak temperature. We were 40. That's 16 degrees warmer than it should be. So this is when you take a one degree global warming figure, and then it translates into heat waves of 16 degrees too warm. And actually, we know that 2000 excess deaths occurred because of those two days of extreme heat. Okay. And again, I think the general understanding is the cause of this is human activity. The cause of this is greenhouse gas emissions, among other things. Now, is there a delay between the human activity and the climate changing? So what I mean by that is greenhouse gas emissions emitted today are unlikely, I would assume, affect the weather and the climate tomorrow. So is there this delay period? And if there is, surely some climate change and some more extreme weather events are going to happen irrespective of what we do, because we've already taken the action, we've already incurred uh, the activity that would have created the climate change in the first place. So the really simple reply to that is, if tomorrow you and I waved our magic wands and we emitted no more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, then the climate would stay at its current level. The problem is that we know that that's not realistic. Um, and even if we slowly reduce our emissions, that emissions are still building up. It's like having the tap on uh, in your bath. You're filling up the bath. You turn the tap down slowly, but it's still filling up. It's still getting higher. And that's the key. It's the amount that goes in. So 
we emitted the most greenhouse gases in human history in 2022. So we haven't even started to flatten the curve. We haven't even started on the decline where we have to get to net zero by 2050. So that's the biggest issue. And so there is no delay. It is actually we dial up and dial down depending on how many emissions we put into the atmosphere. Okay, so we'll, we'll come back to that later on, because but I'd quite like to bring that into everyday life of a typical person. And actually, my understanding is that the impact of climate change, as you illustrated, actually, is different depending on where you live around the world. Uh, and so for a everyday person in America or perhaps in Europe uh, in 10 or 15 years from now, what types of effects can they expect to see on their day-to-day life? So it really depends where you live. So if you're living in California, you're now going to be facing longer droughts, hotter heat waves, massive wildfires. If you happen to be in the southeast of England, you're looking at incredibly dry, hot summers. You're looking at heat waves. You're looking at people actually not being able to survive the heat if they're elderly and vulnerable. And again, if you happen to be under the monsoons in Southeast Asia, some years they're going to be much more intense and therefore you're going to have huge amounts of flooding. And then the next year they might even completely miss out a country. And so it's this variability, it's this lack of predictability. And you have to remember that human society is built up over the last 10,000 years in a climate that has been relatively stable. There have been ups and downs and there have been some climate events, but for the majority of the time, it's been very stable. And therefore, as a farmer, you can literally go, next year, it will rain at this date and I can plant my crops. And what we're doing is we're changing the ground rules. And therefore, humans work by predictability. You know, we basically know summers are going to be hot. That's okay. We can deal with it. And that's, I think, is the issue. It is not the actual climate, because remember, humans live in plus 40 degrees and minus 20 in the Arctic. Okay, so we can live in any climate. It's the change bit, the change bit that actually causes all the issues. So how would you think about preparing for that as an individual, as, you know, as, a, as a parent with children, you know, as someone that goes to work and, and does a job? What, what types of things should they be thinking about? So I think climate change is really problematic when we talk to individuals because this is a global issue. It is mainly about how we produce our energy because 80% of the global energy now is produced from fossil fuels. We need that to move to renewables as quick as possible. So for individuals, it's a really difficult thing because we all feel rather small we lack power. We feel that our uh, impact is very small. And I have a wish list of what I want people to think about and do. I mean, the first thing is, and this is something that is echoed by lots of my colleagues like uh, Catherine Hayhoe, Michael Mann, etc., which is talk about it. This is the greatest crisis facing our species and all the other species on the planet. Therefore, we should be able to talk about it. We should be able to share that anxiety because so many people bottle up the anxiety about the planet, about the climate, about the loss of biodiversity. And so therefore, sharing that with people by talking about it means that people can then go, oh, I feel the same way. And I have to say, I've seen whole companies, billion euro companies shift from yeah, what is the environment to being a very sustainable, very proactive company winning triple A rating from the Calm Disclosure Project because people talked. And guess what? It's even more profitable. It's a great place to work. You know, it all ticks all the boxes. So that's the first thing people should do. The second thing is there are lots of little things we can do that actually as individuals are better for us and better for the planet. So my next one is move to a more plant-based diet. That doesn't mean going vegan or vegetarian. If you want to, absolutely brilliant. But what it means is cutting down your meat consumption, particularly red and processed meat. If you can get rid of it from your diet, 
trust me, you'll be a lot healthier, you'll live a lot longer, and that has a huge impact on your food carbon emissions. Third thing is think about sort of like how do you actually heat your home? Can you go to renewable energy? Can you actually change sort of like the way you uh, get your energy? Can you change the way you actually travel to work? Uh, can you walk more? Can you actually use your car less? If you're able to and you are financially well off, then perhaps think about an electric car. The interesting thing is in 10 years' time, you will be able to choose an electric car, an electric car on electric car, despite the government changing the dates. That will be moved back. So again, we can all do these little things. When this is a really tactical question, but it's the type of thing that I think everyday people think about. I certainly think about this. So I switched my energy to what was dressed up as a green tariff. I have absolutely no idea whether that was, if you like, dirty energy with, a, with an offset being purchased or whether it was genuinely renewable energy. And, and I think part of that is driven by necessarily the availability of, of, the, of the production resources to produce renewable energy to the level that it needs to be and, and, and so on. At this stage, does it matter if you're a consumer as long as it's certified appropriately so? So for me, it is about signaling. If every single consumer of energy in the UK basically said, I want a green energy, I want it to be low carbon, that will shift things markedly. And UK is a success story. I mean, we have got rid of coal. We don't use coal in the energy mix at all. Uh, we have incredible offshore wind, which has been developed, and we are producing huge amounts of energy. And so therefore, we have shifted. The problem is that we didn't shift enough. And this is something that I feel really passionate about, which is if 10 years ago, the government had literally done what they did with offshore wind, for onshore wind, for geothermal, for sort of solar, we wouldn't have the cost of living crisis that we have today. The reason why the prices have gone up is because the price of natural gas has gone up because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But also, you have to remember that the oil price and the gas price are actually controlled by a set of countries, mainly OPEC, who basically manipulate the price to uh, make sure they maximize their profits, but also for political ends. And therefore, why wouldn't we want to have energy security? This is, I, I just don't get governments. It's like, I'm really sorry. I want to have all my energy within my own borders. I'm secure, etc., And therefore, I can make sure that the people get energy at a reasonable price so we don't have energy poverty. We don't have people having to make a choice in this country between, do I heat my home uh, or do I feed my kids? You know, there shouldn't be that choice. When we have ample natural resources, we have something like 60% of the wind resources of uh, Europe on the British Isles. Okay, so I'm just going to summarize what you said around individuals. So talk about it, get yourself educated, move as much as you can to a plant-based diet and preferably avoid red meat, processed meat, make environmentally friendly choices around your energy purchase, your car purchase, the way you travel, uh, and the other things that you may choose to do. And if you can start along that way, I think what you're saying is it signals to the market that if everybody all did those things, it sends the, the appropriate signal to get businesses and governments, they would res respond to the market demand in a natural way and how to accelerate the change that we're looking for. Completely agree. I mean, the most powerful thing that we have is our consumption. Now, I would like people to consume less. I mean, again, if people are listening to this podcast, please remember, what did we miss in COVID and lockdown? It wasn't the number of T-shirts, the number of cars, the number of trainers, you know, or sunglasses that we had. It was being able to go out and hug our friends and relatives. It was being able to go out and be social, to go to a sporting event, to the theater, to actually just have a meal out because we're human. We're hyper social. Okay. That's what makes us happy. It's not stuff. Okay. But we all need some stuff because we need to eat, we need to live, etc. And it's, sometimes it's nice to have some nice bling, you know, that's fine. But again, 
use your money wisely. If there is an option to buy something that you feel is more sustainable or you think it's more green, go for it. Yes, I know. There are issues with greenwashing and is it truly green, etc. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because if you're all going that direction, then companies are going to move that direction and ultimately they'll end up being green and sustainable because, of course, regulation is coming in to support the consumer all the time. So it's just moving the sort of like dial towards stuff that's better, longer lasting, and actually looks good. You know, I mean, again, um, I think one of the things I work with is with lots of designers when we're trying to look at how to move from fast fashion to slow fashion, you know, sort of like stuff that's going to last for decades. I mean, I've got incredible suits that I bought, which are hopefully if I don't eat too much, will keep me going for the next couple of decades. Sorry to interrupt. Please give me 30 seconds of your time. I want to say two things. First, you're halfway through this episode. If you're enjoying it, please follow this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Second, lots of listeners of this podcast are research scientists. If that's you, then consider joining Frontiers Collective a dynamic community that unites research scientists with a common purpose to achieve transformative research outcomes. In this private community, you'll have the opportunity to engage in thoughtful discussions, share ideas, and gain valuable insights from diverse perspectives. The Frontiers Collective serves as a platform for knowledge exchange where cutting-edge research across disciplines converge. To learn more, go to frontierscollective.com. Thank you. Back to the interview. Okay, so let's move to the businesses then. So there's multiple demands on the business. So they have quite often investors or their shareholders. They have the market, the consumer demand or the business demand for their products and services. But they have this new demand, which is the environmental demand, uh, the variability of the environment. So it's clear to me that investors, particularly for companies that are listed on stock exchanges, are being much, much more demanding. Uh, of the environmental credentials that they expect the companies that they invest in to be um, to be progressing, um, and we just talked about the ways in which consumers will change, could change, should change their behaviour that business would need to respond to. So, I actually want to talk about the third of these, which is the issue around the variability of the climate and what that might mean for business planning, risk planning. Um, and whether it's likely to impact some sectors more than others. So imagine that you're advising the board of, you know, you could pick any general company to start off with, and then we'll, we'll try to understand the, the sectors that you think may be more vulnerable. What type of advice would you be giving to them? So the first advice that I give to companies and when I'm talking to CEOs and the board is, one, do a proper risk assessment. The key thing is that it's not just the company, it's their supply chain. And therefore, the supply chain is other companies that you don't necessarily have control over. And therefore, you need to look at where are your raw materials coming from? Is Are these in areas that are going to be adversely affected by climate change? Are there going to be issues about how you ship them and get them to your sort of like uh, factories? How do you actually make the stuff? Are you able to make sure that you have enough energy of the correct type to actually be able to do the stuff? And I think that's it. It's then looking at, firstly, the risk to your supply chain, the risk to your actual product and how you produce it. And then there's the risk that are people going to still buy it? Is your product going to be seen as part of the issue, part of the problem, or are you going to redesign that to make sure it's part of the solution? And we're going to see some really interesting shifts. So huge amount of talk in the EU about trying to develop the circular economy. You know, why do we have white goods, telephones that literally break after a few years, you have to replace them? Now, we all know where that comes from. We all know the Edison story about light bulbs, making sure they all uh, basically stopped working after two years. So everybody was selling the same sort of like uh, uh, stuff. But there is a point where 
actually we need to actually maintain the resource cycle and therefore we need to recycle all of those materials. And so therefore it's then the regulation is coming down the line. There are companies ready for the regulation. Have they actually thought about, again, Apple, have you actually thought about how you actually make your phone modular, how people can actually upgrade their phone without actually buying a new phone? And therefore, we're going to be looking at really very different sort of like models uh, of consumption. And I think those are the things you really have to go through the whole of the business. Because again, we have so many good examples of when companies did not look at the future. Blockbuster is a classic. Okay, they were basically video stores. You went into a video store, you chose your video, you then went home, you brought it back. They didn't really pick up on the digital revolution. They didn't pick up on the sort of like the internet revolution and the Netflix, the Amazon Primes of this world. And they basically died. You need to think about companies going to the wall because they don't see the risk of climate change or the opportunities to be part of the solution. I want to take, talk about the opportunities in a moment, but let's just focus on the risks uh, just a little bit more. Do you see any particular sectors that are more vulnerable than others to the changes in the climate that we might see in the future? So I get the feeling that uh, agriculture is very vulnerable. Uh, that means supply chains for uh, supermarkets, for food distribution around the world. And we've seen when there are major climate shocks, um, you see food prices spiking, which is problematic in Western countries, but absolutely devastating if you're in a uh, least developed or rapidly developing country. If your food prices suddenly go up by 50%, that's all your spare money that's disappeared. And for me, and the Lancet countdown report that I'm part of, which comes out every single year, uh, the next one will be coming out uh, in end of November. The key thing that we measure is the number of days lost due to people not being able to work outside. And that's because as the temperature goes up, we're also seeing the humidity go up. And there is a point in time when it is literally just too hot and humid to work outside. Now, 50% of the world's food is produced by small hold farms with people that are actually going out, working the land, producing the food for their family, for the local village, and then that's then exported to the local towns and cities. If that gets disrupted, and it's already starting to be disrupted, that has a huge implications for food security around the world. And the problem is that that may not necessarily affect Western countries, though we've seen a huge increase in food prices in the UK because of the price of shipping to get the material there. But if the food then also goes up in price, it's going to be hard on the very poor in the UK and Western societies. But again, I'll come back to it. Absolutely devastating. If you're on the sort of like uh, food breadline in other countries, remember, about a billion people that actually survive on $2 a day in the world. So yeah, we're looking at some major catastrophes there. And that's the industry that will be most affected uh, by these uh, extreme weather events. Okay, so the tying together of the agriculture sector, agriculture sector to food security, and therefore the well-being of society is I don't think a connection that people are making habitually. I don't think people are making this connection. I think they hear the headlines that there was a bad crop here or there was particular bad weather or there was flooding that caused this, but I don't think people are drawing that connection yet. So how do we bring that awareness into the minds of everyday people? Because I think it's stories like that, it's information like that will get people talking about it and get people to start changing their behavior. I mean, again, it's also then very difficult because if you turn around to 
normal person like myself and you say, look, here's a loaf of bread that you're buying in your local supermarket. By the way, the reason why it's now 50p more expensive is because Russia invaded Ukraine and Ukraine isn't producing the wheat. That's a really hard thing to actually deal with because you go, okay, but I have no control over that. And I think that's where we need to actually think about uh, solutions to climate change as a tripartite. Governments have a really important role in signaling to companies to actually support companies actually to become greener and more sustainable, but at the same time penalizing companies that basically just carry on business as usual. And companies, uh, again, these are absolutely central. The dynamicism, the sort of like way that they can actually make things very efficient is great. They just have to be incentivized either by us as individuals who basically say, this is what I want to buy, or by governments going, here's the tax break, or here's the subsidy, or here's the heavy regulation, or here's the heavy tax. And you can basically move the whole system in that direction. So I, I think it's really hard to pass, I would say, some of this pressure onto individuals who have no control over it. It's a little bit like saying, uh, sort of like, oh, I'm really sorry, guys, guess what? Your energy bill has basically doubled this year because there's a war in uh, in Ukraine. And guess what? We didn't give you enough renewable energy over the last 10 years. You know, no government's going to say that, but that is actually the truth of the matter. Mm. So the, we're going to talk about government and climate science and politics and all those things that come into the, the policymakers in a moment. But just staying with business for a minute, when there is a great disruption, there's also great opportunities. And organizations with a capitalist mindset will be looking at this disruption and plowing money into innovations, into products and services that will hopefully help to address the issue or manage the issue should it, should it arise and get worse from where we are today. Where do you see really significant opportunities that you also feel are not getting appropriate attention? So for me, I think the most critical one is energy. So if you look at energy production around the world, if we moved everything we can to electric, so electric vehicles, electric heating, electric cooking, all of that, if we move that as fast as possible, the interesting thing is we automatically save 40% energy. The reason being is electric's much more efficient than fossil fuels. Give you an example, an electric car loses about 20% of the energy. A petrol car, about 60%. So therefore, instantaneously, just by shifting from fossil fuels to uh, electric, you make a huge saving in energy. So that's the first thing. But the interesting thing is that our energy is going to become much more complicated. So we're going to have lots of renewables, a lot of really clean electricity going into the uh, grid, which we need. But we also then need consumers to be smart. We need smart demand. Because as we know, guess what? We use a lot of energy in the morning and a lot of energy in the evening, but not much at night and not in the middle of the day. Now, that's different to how the energy is being produced. So we need some storage, but we also need new companies, and lots are actually uh, cropping up, that actually produce smart houses, smart buildings. The idea is you don't need to do your washing in the middle of the day. You can do it at night. You can put your dishwasher on at certain times. But actually, we don't need to do that. What we need to do is just set parameters for our building, our flat, uh, or our office block, and just say, right, we need it to be this temperature at this point. We need these functions to happen. And literally, you give it to an AI system. The AI system goes, ah, guess what? At this moment in time, the energy companies are so desperate, they're actually going to pay us to take electricity off the grid. <gasps> Fine, we'll have, we'll have negative priced carbon, negatively priced electricity. Bring that into sort of like the building. And actually, at this moment in time, if you have solar panels, you have a smart hub, and you have a big, big battery, you can probably actually have zero electricity bills for the whole year. Now, of course, as everybody does that, then, of course, you, you won't be able to do that because, of course, the companies have to make some money somehow. 
Um, so that's where the innovation is going to come in, which is going to make our lives simpler, more efficient, and make sure hopefully our homes and our buildings are better, warmer, more stable climate, and you get stuff done when you need it. Some there's there seems to be quite a lot of investment into other technologies to address the carbon that's already in the atmosphere. Like carbon capture technologies is a good example. I was speaking to a venture capitalist not that long ago that told me that they were looking for a good investment in that area because they felt like it w- it could be an opportunity for for a great return. Is that also an area that you believe has a serious is a serious opportunity to help mitigate some of the impacts? So no, I don't. Uh, so carbon capture and storage is a way of delaying the transfer to electric and renewables. Even though we know that um, renewables are much cheaper than, say, fossil fuels now, even with all the subsidies that fossil fuel companies get. I mean, let's be realistic. Around the world, fossil fuel companies get about $1 trillion in government subsidies from taxpayers' money per year to basically find fossil fuels that we don't need to pollute the atmosphere. And then governments are thinking about then paying them to do carbon capture and storage to basically capture the pollution that we've subsidized them actually producing in the first place. Sounds a bit silly. You know, uh, when I put it like that, everybody just goes, what? It's like, but that's what we're doing. So I would say to your friend, the venture capitalist, no. Okay, don't, because as soon as regulation comes in, that will be completely redundant. Okay, uh, I know a lot of fossil fuel companies, I know lots of countries are putting their bets on carbon capture and storage just so they can keep pumping out oil and, and natural gas. But you're right to mention that we do need to capture carbon from the atmosphere. So this is where sort of like, reforestation, rewilding becomes really important. The reason being is because when we step back and look at the planet, we have to actually realize it's not just climate change that we have to deal with. There's been huge environmental degradation. There's been huge amounts of habitats that we've destroyed. There's huge amounts of pollution issues. We've got the whole plastic issue that we have to deal with. So I'm also very conscious to say, look, we need to talk about sustainability, but we also need to talk about repair. We need to talk about how we clean up the planet to get it back to what we would like to live in. And so therefore, I would say to the venture capitalist, well, look at other technologies. Okay, direct air capture is actually one that's incredibly expensive, high energy. But once the carbon price gets to a certain point, will be very useful for companies to say, look, I've done it. But reforestation. The interesting thing is that we have cut down 3 trillion trees on the planet. So that's half the trees on the planet. So we know the planet can support a lot more trees. Second thing is that this is the very odd thing. Population is going to increase to about 10 billion people. Okay, we're at 8 billion now. And so... Wow, you know, lots more people to feed, etc. Yes, but the interesting thing is they're going to be in cities. So the really odd thing is the world is becoming a wilder place. There are more and more places that literally do not have people. And therefore, these are prime locations that we can actually start to restore. We can put forests back. We can look after them. We can actually manage the planet as a global species and go, okay, right, we can set that aside. Now, how we do that with a capitalist sort of like viewpoint and say, how do you fund those ecosystem services is a huge issue. And I don't think it's really been resolved because, of course, classical economics does not cost in externalities. It basically assumes that rivers and air and everything else are just dumping grounds. And therefore, you don't, you don't really have to cost them in. And so I think one of the most important revolutions that we could have is to start listening to, I would say, the new wave of incredible economists. So Kate Raworth, Mariana Mazzucato, people like that who are basically p- 
pushing back against the neoliberal Chicago school type of thinking, which even the International Monetary Fund said a few years ago. And I love this quote. They said, the economic theories of the last few decades may have been a complete failure. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> love it. And that's from the International Monetary Fund. Uh, and again, they, they weren't trying to do something evil or anything like that. They really thought by taking the training wheels off capitalism, by removing regulation, everything would be much more efficient and work. The problem is that it's really problematic because you need boundaries, you need regulation, you need to actually, uh, how should I put it, have this engine of capitalism, but push it in the right direction, you know, sort of like allow it to go in the right direction um, instead of just going uh, hell for leather. And again, cost in the externalities, the things that matter, you know, clean air, clean water and things like that matter to individuals. To do something like that, most likely we're going to need a strong and well-coordinated government response. Organizations and individuals will have to comply to whatever regulations are being placed upon them. And you talked earlier about COP being a one of the one of the flagship meetings where people get together. And I was interested by the point that you were talking about the 1.5 degrees target, not necessarily, or it sounded like you were saying, wasn't necessarily being informed by climate science. It was being informed by a more of a arbitrary target driven by a political agenda to get some agreement amongst a lot of countries with different interests. So to what extent do you see climate science informing those types of discussions and those types of decisions and do you feel happy? Do you feel they're a cause for celebration when they make their big announcements of the things that they've agreed? Or do you feel slightly disappointed that they didn't go as far as they should have or didn't consider all of the matters that they should have considered? So this is a difficult question because we can look at the international negotiations and we can look at them in two ways. The first one is... They have been successful in many ways that I'm no longer talking about runaway climate change and four or five degrees into the future because economics has changed because renewables are now much cheaper than fossil fuels. So that's also driving sort of like uh, global economics. There is a huge shift into the green economy. Uh, studies that I've done show that something like $10 trillion every year is spent in the green economy, which is about one in every $10, okay? So it's here. People don't see it, but it's here because it's dispersed. If we look at, say, the US, suddenly there's something like 175,000 jobs that have been created because of Biden's sort of like investment. And we know that there's something like 10 million jobs in the green economy in the US as opposed to about 350,000 in the fossil fuel industry. And so there's all this positive stuff that's going on. But for me, I think the important thing is that it hasn't gone quick enough. Yes, we may have avoided the catastrophic warming that I was talking about 10 or 20 years ago, but we've had so many opportunities to bend the curve, to actually reduce the curve. I mean, for me, just imagine if we'd done this in 1989 when Margaret Thatcher stood up in front of the UN and she was the first world leader to say, this climate change, we the leaders of the world must deal with it. I mean, if we'd done that, guess what? Half the issue, I mean, we basically, we doubled the amount of carbon in the atmosphere since her talk. Um, so I think that's the problem. I think the second thing is that uh, many of us go to these COP meetings and we just feel that people are doing things too slowly. We, we've now come to refer to it as the climate crisis. I mean, just look at all the extreme weather events we've had over the last three years. You know, people are suffering on every single continent. We have storms, we have droughts, we have heat waves, we have wildfires, and these are becoming more intense and more common. And this is just the early warning signs, you know, and I think this is where we get frustrated, which is 
I and my colleagues have been telling everybody for 30 years that this is happening. And if we'd acted earlier, she would have been so much easier. So it's basically we've made it harder for ourselves. I also, like many people, get deeply frustrated that the actual science says, you must do this, this, this to keep it to one and a half degrees. And then what we hear is at the next COP meeting in Dubai, we have uh, the president, who's also the CEO of the um, United Arab Emirates Oil and Gas Company, going, yeah, 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 we have to reduce emissions, but we're going to double our output of oil and gas by 2030. It's like, how do you actually hold those two completely opposite views in your head at the same time and have any legitimacy to actually run a climate negotiation. So I think that's where a lot of us are getting really frustrated. And you can see that. You can see that in the new generation. The new generation understands the issue. They want change. They are sticking themselves to roads. They are throwing paint over buildings. They are disrupting sporting events for 10 or 15 minutes to basically try to hammer home. And in many countries, you have governments that have no long-term plan. And this is the thing that I get very frustrated about governments, which is governments have lots and lots of levers that they can actually use, and they're not using them, and they actually are making things worse. UK government, oh, we're going to grant new gas and oil licenses. Why? I know as a geologist, it's going to take 10 to 15 years before those will be operational. And by that time, we're supposed to have cut the amount of oil and gas we're using by half. So why do it? Why send out the wrong messages? When you have the Ford Motor Company and the National Trust both agreeing with each other and criticizing the government for slacking off its climate change sort of like legislation, you sort of know that they got it wrong. Why do you think that happens? Because we don't have the politicians that we need. We need politicians that think for the majority of the people and for future generations. I had a really interesting interview many years ago with Al Gore. And Al Gore said something really interesting. And this is where our interview went. Because he said, we need to fix democracy before we can fix climate change. And of course, because I knew more about climate change than Al Gore, we, we couldn't talk about climate change. So we talked about democracy. But he's right. Again, we deserve leaders that are actually going to sit down and say, I know this is not interesting and not sexy, but we're going to talk about energy efficiency. We're actually going to make sure that we improve energy efficiency as much as possible in the UK. We're also going to think of new and novel ways of making sure that everybody has a solar panel, actually has uh, proper housing, has insulation, and, of course, a heat uh, exchanger, if appropriate. And I think that's really important. We, we have this weird mindset, and it's all on the individual. And I think that's wrong. Again, there are right-wing, center, and left-wing policies that we can roll out to deal with climate change. Um, for me, one of the interesting things is we could, if we wanted to, engage with the big pension funds like I have. They have to supposedly invest in fossil fuels because they're mandated to make a profit. Even though when I pointed out that they don't invest in tobacco and they don't invest in weapons, they go, oh, no, because they're not profitable. Yeah, you're lying there. Um, but they still feel mandated to invest in fossil fuels. However, if there was a scheme, a government-backed scheme that said, look, we're going to go through every single house and basically uh, see if people will want us to put in a battery, solar panels, uh, heat exchanger, and insulation for free, we, the pension will pay a pension uh, pot and the uh, sort of like government will pay up front for it. And the only thing is that that property then has a surcharge on their energy bill for the next 20 years. Now, of course, the people owning or renting that place will be very happy because, of course, guess what happens? The energy bill halves and then have a small surcharge on it. 
But the pensions uh, funds are happy because they have a guaranteed 10% return every single year, and therefore they're, they're happy because it's standard. And that's the other key thing that frustrates me with governments, and this is something that all business leaders that I talk to always say. It's like, we do not care how strict the regulation is because they're really good. They're going to make money. But don't fiddle with it because most businesses are planning one year, five years, and 10 years into the future. So they want to have a stable regulation so they can plan. They also want something else that government just never gets, which is they're happy doing the right thing. But what really upsets them is if down the road, one of their competitors isn't following the regulations and actually is getting away with it and making more money, they hate that. So therefore, enforce. Make sure that people are actually doing what they say. We have great building regulations in this country, but they're not enforced because the government took away the independence uh, uh, adjudicators and basically said, oh, you just pay a company to come and check your properties. That doesn't work. Hey, I'm going to pay you to make sure all these pass. So, and do you know how many houses have had to be rebuilt due to poor construction in this country? I couldn't guess. None. That sounds Absolutely like the regulations aren't working. No. The reg- but the regulations are there. But they're not the being applied. Correct. They're not being enforced. And again, this goes to the water companies. The water companies for the last 10 years have been pumping and discharging uh, microplastics and plastics into all our rivers illegally against the regulations. But if you don't enforce the regulations, everybody just basically carries on and gets away with it. So it sounds like what we need is just a few simple things which are hard to do. We need the governments to listen to the science. We need them to act much, much faster than they have previously demonstrated that they can act. And then they need to make sure that whatever they want to happen does actually happen. I also think they need to communicate it. So for example, if you roll out a huge scheme to make sure that everybody has solar panels and renewables, you say exactly why. You go, this is good for the country and it's going to make your bills cheaper. Uh, We're looking after us and you. (laughs) And I think that it's just that simple messaging which needs to be sort of like uh, pushed forward. Um, Classic, I didn't really understand the Yulu thing, which is, of course, air pollution in London. Uh, The mayor has been trying to reduce it as much as possible, particularly old and diesel vehicles cause huge amounts of air pollution, which causes stillbirths, asthma, and sort of like chest infections. So you would want a clean city. But when it was expanded, literally uh, an election, a by-election, was flipped because people go, oh, no, how dare you sort of like tell me I can't have an old car. It's like if they'd switched and said, because we're trying to stop people dying, then I think that you need to message like that. And I think sometimes sort of like people don't get the bigger picture. And I think I understand why, but we need better sort of like communication. We need better understanding of why governments need to do things which are in the long term better for people. In your book, How to Save Our Planet, which I love, I love the way you've laid it out. I love the directness of laying down the facts and the actions that individuals, businesses, corporates, and governments need to make. You talk about two different scenarios in 2100. One you called Nightwear and one you called Ecotopia. Interestingly, the Ecotopia one was the one that inspired me. I was scared by the Nightmare one, but could you share your vision, which you say in your book is a realistic vision, if we start taking the appropriate action of what this could look like if we all work together and do the things that we need to do in your ecotopia vision? So I think the first thing to say is there is no reason we cannot have that ecotopia. The world generates about a hundred trillion dollars per year. Okay. And that's increasing by about 3% every year. So it's not lack of money. It's a lack of vision and willpower. So just imagine your day-to-day life. 
And the weird thing is, it'll probably be very similar, you know, sort of like you have a house, you have a flat, and guess what? Slightly differently, it will be really warm in winter, and it will be exactly the temperature you want it to be. Uh, it will be cooled in summer because we're having some uh, heat waves, so it'll cool the house. All of your appliances will be very efficient, and they will last a long time, so you won't have to keep replacing all the white goods. And you will have uh, incredible healthy food because you've moved to a more plant-based diet. And guess what? You're feeling better. Your children are really healthy. Uh, you go outside. Uh, you sometimes need to go to the shops just because you know you want to actually have a little bit of sort of like uh, variety. So you get into your electric car or you get into your amazing public transport, which is all electric, which is all subsidized, so it makes that people can move around. Uh, and you go to the supermarket, and it's incredibly efficient in there. You know, sort of like um, you know that they've uh, stocked the local food as well, and you can start to see this world. Um, and guess what? You might even be able to walk from your home to your office. And I love the fact that sort of like so many commentators get so upset about the 15 minute cities. You know, the idea that sort of like actually having your school, your work, your shops, your home all within 15 minutes, I, I, that sounds like heaven to me, you know. Um, so you may not go into office every day because you can homework because we've got all these incredible sort of like technologies now. But when you go into the work, you know, your office is sort of like, uh, run by uh, sort of uh, renewable energy. You have lots of sort of like uh, wonderful sort of like interactions with your colleagues, etc. And you can start to build up this world. The other thing that you'll notice is when you go to work, there's so many trees. You know, sort of like cities have been green. You know, sort of like trees are everywhere. Um, you look out of your say your skyscraper because you're working for a corporation, and you can just see. All the other smaller buildings have green roofs. They sometimes have water features on there as well. And you suddenly realize that sort of like you're living in a metropolis, which has brought nature into it as well. And so I think these are the sort of things that you can think about. Oh, and then suddenly you decide you need to go on vacation. So you suddenly go, ah, I can't be bothered to fly, even though big, incredible, efficient airplanes We'll just hop on the train. And you get a bullet train that goes literally across Europe. I mean, I've been so fortunate. I have I sat on a bullet train in Korea. And literally in two hours and 40 minutes, I went the same length as the whole of the United Kingdom. <laughs> you know, you can imagine that sort of like infrastructure being so useful and so helpful. You just hop on. I'm lucky. I live next to King's Cross Station. So I have that ability to hop on the Eurostar and be in Paris in two and a half hours. You know, it's, it's just that being able to do that. The other thing is then you suddenly realize that oh, you haven't got a certain item, you know, sort of like, oh, I did, you know, I forgot that in the supermarket. So you can order it up, a drone comes and drops it off, or you actually get some really nice person on an electric bike coming around and delivering sort of like your takeaway. And sort of like, again, you have all of this sort of like uh, positiveness about community as well. And I think that's what we really want. We, we can see that vision and it's not that expensive. And actually, if we do it properly, it's going to save us billions of pounds. I mean, for me, the interesting uh, analysis was the downdraw project. And they said, look, if we go net zero and we do it properly, and actually, one of the biggest savings is all the health savings that we have because we're all much more healthier. Um, $46 trillion globally we could save by going net zero. That's half the world's GDP. And so when people say to me, oh, net zero, it's going to cost us more. No, it's not actually. It's a better, cheaper, safer, healthier, and wealthier world. Why wouldn't we? Sounds wonderful. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm game for it. I'm, I'm happy to uh, sort of lambast go, uh, government to make sure it happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with you. So just to finish off then, um, you will be um, inspiring many people, both 
those that are listening here, those that see you on social media or any presentations that you do, um, because of the level of um, informed passion that you you have around this subject and the and the rallying cry that you have about kind of uh, almost demanding uh, the case for change. So there will be people that would like to do what you do, like to follow in your footsteps um, from a research perspective, from an advocacy perspective, or actually do something to address climate change themselves. Um, from your perspective, how would you? what advice would you give to somebody that wanted to follow those paths? So for me, what is really exciting is because sustainability and climate change affect every part of our economy, it doesn't matter what job you do. It's going to be involved. You're going to be involved. Um, I once said something very glib, and unfortunately, uh, the reporter, after an hour of uh, discussion, literally led with this. And I said that one of the most important groups of people for the future are the accountants. Because, of course, we're going to have to account for not just money, but things like water, biodiversity impact, carbon, uh, social good. So again, actually measuring things and things like that. So for me, there isn't any one route to people becoming positive and really strong advocates for a better world. You can do it through any job. You happen to be a CEO of a company. Just turn the company around and basically uh, everybody's going to thank you because you'll make it more profitable and more environmentally friendly at the same time. If you happen to be uh, working with your sport, local sports club, just think about sort of like things that you can do slightly differently. You know, uh, can you improve the sort of like uh, nutrition of your players? You know, if you happen to be in a church group, is there a way of changing the way you heat or when you heat the church and things like that? So for me, please don't follow my footsteps, okay? Actually, because every single person out there has a role to play. They have a unique place and have a voice. And so therefore, for me, it's basically finding what you're good at, what you're doing, and actually then advocate for that. And I think this is why talking about it is so important, because everybody will be sitting there going, oh, I don't know anything about this. You know, I don't uh, get it. And actually, nobody cares. They'll wander into their work or their sort of like charity group or sort of like their sports team. And, and they'll sort of like, under their breath, go, I'm really worried this week about climate change. And everybody else goes, so me, me too. Boom, 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 boom. And you build that community. And again, whatever you do is just going to make a difference. It's also going to make yourself actually feel a lot better, make sure you feel that you're engaged with the issue, and it makes you feel that you're doing your little bit. That's all we can do, just that little bit. But just imagine if, Every single person just does their little bit, shifts the whole world. Absolutely. Thank you. That's great advice. Where can we find more out about your work? Where should we look? Oh, so as you said, uh, uh, unfortunately, I am active on social media. So I'm on sort of uh, LinkedIn to engage with the business community. Uh, I'm on Twitter, or now we have to call it X, to basically uh, push back. Again, I find that social media is quite uh, combative. So I'm there just to try and make sure that the voice of climate scientists is still there and people realize we haven't gone away. Um, also, uh, as you know, I write books. Uh, I also write a lot of blogs. So if you go on to the conversation, um, there's a lot of blogs that I've written because I'm really sorry, people don't have time to read a book. And that's why I tried to write the book in single sentences so people could literally start at the back, flip into the middle. You know, they, they can have time to do that. But most books, we just don't have time nowadays with our busy lifestyle. So I write blogs, which are about uh, a thousand words long, which are things like, what is the best diet to save the planet? Uh, again, uh, what are the things that climate deniers are going to tell you. And so therefore, there's lots of that that you can engage with, which, again, I'm just trying to empower people. Uh, again, a lot of these are, and there's a running joke, because a lot of people always jokingly say, actually, it's always the uncle 
that's the climate denier. You know, it's sort of like it's always sort of like grandma that's reading sort of like the Daily Mail. You know, and so therefore, what I do is because we're not all climate experts, we're not all climate scientists. Uh, luckily, because it would be a really dull world. Um, and so therefore, what I do is I try to write as many little short things that can empower people so people can have the answers. So when people say, oh, you know, CO2, it's such a small amount in the atmosphere, how could it ever have an effect? My little response is, well, guess what? You don't really need to take much arsenic into your body to die. Size is not always a good predictor of outcome. <laughs> and so there, there are little things like that that you can use uh, against your favorite uncle and your grandmother. Very good. Thank you. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? I mean, my fi final thought is humans are a unique species. We are ones that can actually see the impact of our actions. And we can also predict into the future. So we're the first species to be able to do this. We're also the first species that actually has controlled our reproduction. And that's because we've educated half of our population, the female half, to secondary school level, and they take control of fertility. So we're a very unique species. And I think the next stage that we have to step up to is to think as a global species. Really easy to think as an individual, as a family member, as a group, a part of your city or even your country. But how do we go one level up? How do we actually manage this beautiful planet where we have life? And it's the only place that we know life exists in the universe. So we have this sort of like custodianship that we need to actually start to embrace. And we also need to start thinking about how we look after each other as well as the planet. And I think we need that to evolve in the 21st century. And for me, I see lots of positives. I see lots and lots of positive change. It's, again, we just have to go back to the stage, which is if you're doing all this fantastic positive stuff, we just need to do it faster. Absolutely. This has been an inspiring, insightful conversation Professor Mark Maslin, thank you so much. Thank you, Ian, for having me on. And I hope your listeners enjoyed. And if I've inspired anyone, great. <laughs> I think you have. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow us on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.